Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. A question for you. Are all humans of equal value? Are all humans of equal value? You know, I suspect if we took a poll right now, we'd get a fairly unanimous response that yes, all humans are of equal value in this world. It's something that's relatively unchallenged in our culture today, but it hasn't always been so. Now, some might say our beliefs concerning equality began with the founding of the United States of America and the Declaration of Independence. Just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated July 4th, or what I, being born British, like to call Treason Day. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> and 246 years ago, the authors of the Declaration of Independence wrote these very famous words. I'm sure you've heard them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem is that many of the signers of this declaration were actually slaveholders, 11 of the 39 to be precise, and these humans or slaves were certainly not considered to be equal. Also, while men were considered equal, women certainly weren't. For instance, they'd have to wait another 144 years to get the right to vote. No, even 250 years ago, at the dawning of our democracy, this idea of the equality of all human beings wasn't as popular as it is today. So where did it begin? Well, the notion of equality that we hold today, and this may surprise you, is a profoundly Judeo-Christian idea, not something found among the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans or any other group or major religion for that matter. And it begins at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 when the writer tells us that man and woman are made in the image of God or the imago dei, Genesis 1, 27. It's an incredible statement, one that's at odd with all the other cultures and all the other religions around and one that immediately sets apart all human life as of great value and significance from womb to tomb and beyond. Whereas other cultures would treat certain humans as disposable, even tossing young infants on the garbage dump who were deemed unlikely to be healthy or successful adults, those who believed in the Judeo-Christian God had a very different set of beliefs. And these views are further evidence with God's call to Abraham and the Jewish nation to be a blessing to all nations, not just themselves, but even the pagans around them. And then in the laws given by God to Moses for the Israelites concerning the treatment of children, immigrants, the poor, the widows, etc., all were to be loved and cared for, and not just the strongest, the richest, the most beautiful, or the most intelligent. And then we see it in the chastisement of the Jews by their own prophets for their neglect of these same people. And in the words they would speak of a chosen one who would come and set the captives free and heal the brokenhearted and the afflicted, standing up for the poor and the needy. And then we see it with the arrival of Jesus, humbling himself and becoming a human, dwelling among us in relative obscurity and poverty and going to the least of these, the adulterers, the extortioners, the terminally ill, the poor and the outcasts and loving them. 
And then we see it with the early church. We saw this a few weeks ago with those first Christians taking care of the widows, but also taking care of orphans. And as we'll see, being willing to take the gospel out beyond their own Jewish people. And then we see it in the efforts of the church throughout the last two millennia to take care of all people. They came and they rescued children from garbage dumps. They took care of widows who had no income. They brought an end to the brutal slaughter of the gladiatorial games. They were concerned with the advancement of equal rights for women. They visited the sick and the deceased, building hospitals, schools, universities, bringing about an end to slavery, establishing food pantries and shelters for the homeless, bringing relief during natural disasters and famines around the world. And the list goes on and on and on. Yes, for all the many negative things said about the Christian faith, many of which are grossly exaggerated or even false, without Christianity, the world would have been and would be today a very, very dark place. And equality as we know it would not have become the norm in our culture. The equality that we in our culture fearlessly defend is a belief founded upon the teachings of Scripture. None more so than our reading today where Peter utters the famous words, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Yes, well, last week, Chris shared how God can save anyone. He can save anyone. This week, we'll see that the gospel is for everyone. It crosses all races. It crosses all national boundaries, all income brackets, all ages, all abilities. It is, in fact, the great leveler. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we read in Romans. And therefore, all need to repent and believe or face the consequences of their sin. So let's turn to our reading from Acts chapter 10, verses 24 through 48. And you can follow along if you want on the screen. You can pull out your scripture sheet, pull out your Bible, your Bible app, whatever you're most comfortable with, and um, follow along as we go through this. And the first section is verses 24 through 34 of what I've called Dreams Can Come True, or the Holy Spirit Guides. And in the first section of today's story, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who guides the two main people in our story, Peter and Cornelius, and who conspires, in fact, to bring about this seismic moment, not only in the history of the church, but in the history of the world as we know it. And how does the Spirit do this? Well, as Peter alludes to in verse 28, there is a reason that he's gone to Caesarea. God has shown him that he shouldn't call any person common or unclean. And if you look back at verse 9 through 16, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, if you look back at those verses in the same chapter in Acts, you see that Peter, who's in a town called Joppa, has fallen into a trance or a kind of a vision where God's spoken to him and told him that contrary to many of Israel's civil laws in the Old Testament, there are now no longer any unclean animals. Now anything can be eaten, even by Jewish Christians which must have been great for those who really loved bacon, (laughs) right? (laughs) Finally, I can have some bacon. Well, in verse 15, God tells Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. And it's this huge moment for the early church, which up until now had taken the gospel as far as the Jewish diaspora. But now the way is paved for the gospel to go much further and for the disciples to include everyone in their evangelism. 
And so when Peter is visited by servants of a Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea, a, it is a non-Jewish Gentile called Cornelius, he is far more receptive to his servant's request to come back with them. And especially so when he hears that Cornelius has also had a vision from the Lord. Did you catch that? And Peter even explains to Cornelius how he wouldn't have done this prior to his own vision from the Lord. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. As Anne and Gavin Calva put it, the magnitude of this passage can easily be lost on us today. It is difficult for us to fully understand the impassable gulf in the days of the early church between the Jews and the Gentiles. This was such a huge divide and one that would be unthinkable to cross in the ways that the early church does. You see, the Gentiles were despised by the Jews for various reasons, and not least of which must have been that the Jews were an occupied people. Imagine that. They had been occupied by numerous empires throughout their long history, numerous Gentiles. And at this time, they're occupied by who? The Romans, right? The Romans. And what is Cornelius? He's a Roman. He's a Roman centurion. And today's equivalent, as I was thinking about this this week, could be something like a Ukrainian Christian whose hometown has just been flattened and then occupied by the Russians, deciding to take the gospel message to those Russian soldiers right outside, those ones who are occupying his town and his country. It's that, uh, this, that difficult, I could imagine, for Peter and for these early Christians. And what is this gospel message then that he shares? Well, look at the second section of our passage, verses 34 to 43. We see him uh, right here. We see him, uh, Peter, share the good news of Jesus Christ. And he begins with the realization that the gospel is for everyone, not just for the Jews. Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And then he goes on to explain the basic content of the gospel, the truth of what he's witnessed, if you will, that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in him and lives for him will receive forgiveness through him. Notice though, as you read this, um, this sermon of a sort, there's no funny stories, no interesting illustrations. What does he present? Jesus. He just presents Jesus. It's very matter of fact. Okay. And what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit in this third section of the passage, he shows up. He's orchestrated all of this anyway, and he shows up in a really powerful way. In fact, in what some have called the Gentile Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't even wait for Peter to be done. He's like, Peter, enough. <laughs> I'm coming now. The time is now. And before he's even finished, he falls on all who are listening to him share the gospel, filling them with his power and enabling them to speak in tongues and to give glory to God. Luke tells us that the Jewish Christians who are there are amazed. And it again underlines just how deep-seated the enmity was between them and the Gentiles. They can't believe it. How could they receive the Spirit? How could this be the case? But instead of fearing or rejecting what's happening, Peter discerns that, yes, this is God's work. In verse 47, he says this, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so the first Gentiles are baptized right there and then. 
It is, as I've, or as we've already noted, it is a quite incredible story. And not primarily because of the way the Holy Spirit works and orchestrates all of this. Yes, that is incredible, don't hear me wrong, but primarily because of the way that the gospel is now clearly understood to be for everyone. It's for everyone. There's to be an equality of opportunity for all people to respond. And as the Holy, uh, sorry, as the Apostle Paul will later boldly write, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result of all of this, you and I sit here today. That would not be the case if it wasn't for this reality. Now, this really shouldn't have come as a surprise to Peter or any of the disciples, if you stop and think about it for a moment. Obviously, they knew the stories about Abraham and how Abraham had been told to be, uh, that they would be a blessing for all nations. Then, of course, they would have known the story about Jesus' birth and how some of the first people to come worship him were people from a distant land, right? Gentiles, the wise men, as we know them. Jesus had also healed a Gentile Roman centurion servant at one stage. He'd cast out a demon from a Gentile Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And he'd commissioned the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, far beyond Israel's border. Yes, you see, the truth that the gospel was for everyone was actually always there. It was there all along to be seen. But how many of us in the church actually believe this, that the gospel is for everyone? Phil Moore writes this. If you learn the lessons of the book of Acts, Satan has only one option left to prevent you from wreaking massive damage on his kingdom. He must make you short-sighted and trick you into limiting the scope of your ministry for Christ. If he can restrict your gaze to Sundays, he will. And if he can turn it into a private religion or even corporate church religion, he will do that too. If he can dupe you into ring-fencing your faith away from work colleagues, relatives, neighbors, or any of the people groups in your nation, he still hopes to carry the day. We mustn't let him. Every limit, restriction, and barricade of Satan must be broken for the sake of Jesus' gospel. I wonder who you and I are tempted to dismiss. Who are we tempted to have prejudice against? Or maybe we do have prejudice against. Who do we believe that God could never, would never, or even should never save? Is it your next door neighbor who you can just never get to talk to you? Is it your son or your daughter who's turned their back on Jesus? Is it that really obnoxious work colleague you see every day? Is it that Muslim friend that you have? Or maybe that vocal atheist that you've recently encountered? Maybe the agnostic who seems to have it all together? Or the estranged family member? Who is it that you've given up on or in fact actually never even tried to share the good news of the gospel with? The gospel, friends, is for everyone whether we like them or whether we don't. And we are called to share it, to share it. I loved how one of you told me last week that you took a chance on the phone with a travel agent, I think it was, and you shared the gospel over the phone and led them to the Lord. How fantastic is that, right? You just never know when the opportunity will come or who it will come with. 
So friends, begin praying for opportunities. Pray that God will lead you and guide you and that you will no longer see like this with tunnel vision, but you'll be able to open your eyes and see what he's doing all around you in the people you're encountering each and every day. And see then how the Holy Spirit leads you much as he leads Peter. And make sure also that you, like Peter, can share the gospel in a succinct and simple way. If we were to stop you today and say, hey, come up and tell us the gospel, would you be able to do that in 30 seconds to a minute or so, much as we see Peter do right here? Would you be able to share it? Just share who Jesus is. And as you do it, to do it in a really genuine and personal way. Rebecca Manley Pippert, who's the author of the Christian classic on evangelism, have it here, out of the salt shaker, um, evangelism as a way of life, writes this. Our problem is evan- in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It is that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and know, not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. We haven't grasped that it really is okay for us to be who we are when we're with seekers, even if we don't have all the answers to their questions or if our knowledge of scripture is limited. Many of us feel inhibited because we feel like we have a lack of knowledge. But the thing is that if you know Jesus, then you know the story of the gospel and you have enough to share with someone else who he is. Well, I'll close with this. Um, Corrie Ten Boom, who I've mentioned before, is the author of another Christian classic. It's called The Hiding Place. I hope you'll take the time to read it at some stage. And she shares this story of uh, being willing to take the gospel to a people she might not even have felt that God should save. And if anyone feels uh, right, was be anywhere near rightly justified in that belief, it would be her. You see, that group was the Germans immediately after World War II. You see, she was Dutch, and she had been imprisoned with her sister Betsy in a POW camp. In fact, her sister died there, and she was imprisoned for hiding Jewish friends and neighbors and eventually Jewish strangers who just happened to find out about the safe place they were offering. And she writes this. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now... He was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. 
How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their sins, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. It is the great equalizer. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, including you, including me. And all of us need forgiveness, both you and me. And who are we to judge who God could or should save? All humans are of equal value in God's eyes, made in his image and dearly loved by him. I wonder, who is he leading you to share the gospel with this week? Will your eyes be open and will you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Once again, we call upon you. Call upon you to empower us, to embolden us, to lead us, to guide us out of this place today and into the world into a lost and broken and hurting world, Lord Jesus. Help us not to rush by the person who is clearly hungry for you. Help us not to rush by the person who so desperately needs you.
but to stop and to talk and to share who you are with them, Lord Jesus. To not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, Lord God. It's the one thing that we all truly need in this world. And for those in here who've not chosen to follow you today, would they open up their hearts to you? Would they repent of their sin? Would they seek your forgiveness? Would they believe in you? And would they choose to follow you the rest of their lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.